Well, today we're returning again to this blessed Lord's Prayer. And today we're going to be talking about the forgiveness of sins. And we're told in the book of Jeremiah chapter 17 that it is the nature of every person's heart, yours and mine, every person's heart, to be corrupt. That's what that verse tells us. We might not like that. But that's what that verse tells us. It tells us that it is the nature of every person's heart to be corrupt. And that our heart is so corrupt and deceitful that it's beyond cure. And it also asks the question, who is able even to know their own heart? Who is able to know their own heart? How often have you heard in a movie somebody giving this wonderful advice saying, just follow your heart. Let me suggest that you don't do that. According to this truth within the scriptures, our hearts are corrupt. They truly are from birth and they're deceitful above all things. Who can even know the deceitfulness of their own heart? And then also in the book of Proverbs chapter 27, we're told that as a man thinketh or a woman thinketh, so he is. And then also in Proverbs Chapter 14, we're told that there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Folks, those are truths. We may not like to hear that about ourselves because he's talking about us, but this is true. And there's only one remedy, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But as we consider those words that I just gave to us, those truths, and there are so many more just like them. Should we not stop to consider if these words are describing the person that we are, that you and I are individually? And if we find that this is who we are, and in light of the next words that Jeremiah will tell us there in chapter 17, should we not ought to become different than what we are? He tells us a little bit later, and this is the Lord's words. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart, search your heart, my heart, and I test the mind, even to the giving of every man, every woman, according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. And then also, we're told right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and listen to these words carefully, God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil. I want to emphasize again, God does not forget anything. Although those words are presented to us in Scripture, we misunderstand what God is saying. He's saying that I will forget the penalty for those sins. With Christ having died for them, I'll not hold them against you. And that's the way God forgets those sins against us. But He will. He will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil. That's the truth from Scripture. Now, simply put, God knows the heart and the mind of every man and every woman. And He knows and He makes a record. Yes, He makes a record of everything that we think and we say and do. Because that's why He was able to say here that He'll bring every hidden thing into judgment, whether it be good or evil. And He'll surely call us to account... For all of those things that we have done, he'll bring that into judgment at the end of days. And yes, without question, if our sins, listen, if our sins are left unrepented and not atoned for, 
there surely will be consequences. Consequences for all those things that have taken place during this life that we live here on this earth. And so then, knowing all of that to be true, knowing all of that to be true, then what are we supposed to do with all of those things, all of those behaviors, all of those habits that are wrong, that take place during most all the days of our lives? That's the subject of this message, and that's the subject of this part of the Lord's Prayer. Listen to these words. This is the scripture that we've been studying for the past several weeks. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass, as he was praying, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the days just before Jesus began his ministry of salvation, God had sent out John the Baptist ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. John the Baptist was preaching and warning the people that the kingdom of God was at hand, was right now among them. And that above all else, they needed to humble their hearts, repent of their sins, and seek forgiveness from God, or else they would perish. Those were the words of John the Baptist. And that's also the implicit message that the Lord Jesus has for us in this next instruction here in this prayer. Here his instruction to us is to cry out, to cry out often and continually for forgiveness of our sins. Now in some of the other versions of the scripture, the translators choose words such as forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. And those are excellent translations because those elements of sin, they are most often present within all the many forms of sin that we commit each day. Our sins, so often, are much like the other debts that we owe. Wrongful behaviors, conduct that's often done thoughtlessly or arrogantly or foolishly. We say harmful words and we do offensive things that really can't be unsaid, can't be undone. Incurring debts of broken hearts and broken relationships that seem never to be able to be repaid. And as we do those wrongful things, we step across lines. We trespass across boundaries that we should never breach. Committing sins that for many people are unforgivable. Has that taken place in any of your lives recently? Certainly has in mine. And remembering that sins our debts, our trespasses, while they're most often focused against other people. That's who we see. We see their face in front of us and we see their behavior and we respond to it wrongly. But though our trespasses are against those people, our sins, listen, our sins are first and foremost against the very character and against the very nature of God himself. It is to him, it is to God that we must first go. And so here in this prayer, in these words, God gives us the first steps that are required 
for these sins to be atoned for and to be washed away. It's a cry. It's a heart-filled plea to God for his forgiveness and for his help. A fervent cry for mercy and grace. And we know from the words of Psalm 51, and I do recommend that you read Psalm 51 often, often. We know from those words that our prayers must come from a broken and contrite heart. A crying out to God to remove our sins from us, to wipe them away, to cleanse our wretched souls from the sins that have captivated us and separated us from that deep and intimate fellowship that we ought to always have with God the Father. That sense of grief within the heart is so well spoken about there in Psalm 51. You might recall David had so foolishly, foolishly allowed himself to get caught up within the sin of lust. And then caught up in that sin of lust, he connived and committed so many other sins. Now listen, in these words, we have to keep in mind that as Jesus teaches these men about the mysteries of prayer, he's not instructing unbelievers, people that know nothing about the Lord. He is teaching his own very devoutly believing disciples. There's a great deal of difference between the things that can be taught to believers and the things that can be taught to unbelievers. And folks, sin resides at the heart of that difference. But please know that even as believers, you and I still aren't truly able to grasp the seriousness and the severity with which God views the whole matter of sin. Our minds are too small to comprehend just how impossible it is for our sinfulness to coexist with the purity and the holiness of God. It cannot. We don't understand how our sin divides and separates us away from our fellowship with God himself and also with those around us that we sin against. But you and I, listen, you and I need to do our very best to know and to understand the awful nature of sin. To know and to understand it especially from God's perspective. Else we'll never be able to truly enjoy an intimate fellowship with Him that He desires. And we'll never know the blessings, all the many blessings that are ours when we have that kind of intimate fellowship with Him. Simply put, listen, sin is never a small thing to God. Have you ever been guilty of saying, I told a little white lie? Or defending someone else, maybe one of your children. Oh, it was just a little white lie. There is no such thing, let me assure you. Sin is never a small thing to God. And we can't allow ourselves to count it as a small thing. Turn with me, if you will, and I'd like for you to do this, because I want you to read these words again when you're not in church. And they're Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and it's going to be verses... 1 and 2. And in these words, God defines the sin that he's talking about. The definition of sin. And as we examine it, let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sin's complicated and deceptive nature to our own hearts and our own minds. Listen to these words. This is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. There the Lord says, blessed is he, and by the way, when he talks about he, it's men and women alike. When he uses the word man, he's talking about men and women alike. 
So he tells us, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Folks, hidden within these few words is a variation in meaning that does not easily reveal itself within our simple English language translation. These words, transgression, sin, iniquity, and guile, each of them have their own meanings. They're similar, but they're different. But they're all sin. They are all sin. And we should know what those differences are and about the impact that they have within our souls. Now here in verse 1, that word expressed as sin speaks of a special, unique predisposition within a person's soul that causes them to do things that are contrary to the righteousness and to the holiness of God. And not just once, but continually. Continually. Until sin entered into men's souls, beginning there in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, there was this special unity, oneness, an undivided oneness with God. But then after sin, and as that predisposition towards sin took up residence within their souls, God could no longer fellowship with them. So he removed himself from them. He removed his spirit from them. And from that moment forward, men and women, you and I, everyone who was born after Adam and Eve, we've all been guided and been controlled by our own sinful predisposition. Now this next word for sin, we find it's similar, but it's different. Iniquity. Iniquity is a form of sinfulness that has a nature to it. A nature of perversity. A perversity that is continually off course with God's righteousness. It's a nature that, while not absolutely depraved, it's not as bad as it could be. But in every facet of our nature, it is totally depraved. Every bit of it is depraved. That's why men and women are said to have a sin nature. A nature that left unchanged, listen, left unchanged by God's grace is ever and always contrary to the righteousness of God. Now this next word, transgression, or trespass, there in verse 1, speaks about those actual deeds of sin. Acts of sin that we commit. Obvious acts of sin that we commit. But then also, there are sins of omission. There are those things that you and I should be doing, but we're not doing And our not doing those things hurt people. And they offend God. And so we call those sins of omission. And we go about our day with those acts and those behaviors. And they're generally self-centered in nature. Benefiting ourselves and hurting others. And folks, they are many. And unfortunately, they are often. Now this next word, this next word that speaks about sin here in verse 2, the word guile. We don't use that word very often in our modern language. But this word guile. Guile is a form of craftiness and deceitfulness that was used by the master of all deception, Satan himself. There as he tempted Eve to reject God's lordship over her and to fall into transgression. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. 
Guile is an especially deceitful sin, cleverly hiding itself within our souls, occupying our thoughts. It's where sin begins, back there in one of those distant thoughts. But it starts to work its way out into fruition. But it rests there for a while, very subtly, until it has that opportunity. And it not only provokes our own soul to sin, it reaches out to other people, into other people's lives, causing them also to sin. All of these many forms and conditions of sin, they're powerful. And it's their constant purpose to corrupt our souls. And none of us are exempt. None of us. Sin is resident within each of us from the very first moment of birth and left unchanged. That's a key thought. Listen, left unchanged, a person will live out all the days of their lives in one form of perversity and beguiling sin or another, constantly doing things that are contrary to the righteousness of God. And to make matters worse, because our condition is one of total depravity, if we don't have God's Holy Spirit within us to help us, to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. There is nothing else within our natural self to help us to be aware that we're even doing anything wrong. And that's why you can talk to so many of your friends and they have no idea that they're making someone else's life miserable, perhaps your own. It's because the Holy Spirit, they're not allowing the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit is not within them. One of those, the Holy Spirit is not convicting them. And there's nothing within their natural self to tell them that they're doing anything wrong. Now, by the way, let me hasten to say that there are a lot of preachers that will argue differently. They'll argue that within every person is an innate sense of right and wrong. And yes, listen, yes, because we were created in the image of God, some of that image still does remain within our souls, leaving us with a human conscience. And that's why when people care to listen to the twinges of their human conscience, they do refrain from doing some of the worst things that they could do. But folks, listen, and please understand that simply abstaining from sinful conduct is not the same as righteousness. The two are very different. Let me say that again. Simply abstaining from doing something wrong does not make you righteous. It's a good thing, yes, but it does not make you righteous. So then, yes, most people do have this innate sense of right and wrong. Some even have excellent behavior and lifestyles. And this is a good thing. That is a good thing. It's part of the common grace that God spreads among men and women to provide opportunities of harmony on this earth. But excellent behavior and lifestyle is only profitable to a person while they live here on the earth. And it is not true righteousness. And listen, it will not gain a person eternal life and entrance into heaven. Now let me say those words again. Here in this prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts. And now also here in Psalm 32, we're told about the exact sins 
that the Lord's speaking about in the prayers. He said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This is the ultimate necessity for men's souls, to be blessed in this way. Else we will surely suffer an eternity of a living death in hell, completely and utterly separated from God and from His blessings and protection. But beyond that, beyond that, these blessings begin now. Folks, they begin now, today, during our living years. It says, we're told here in these words, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's saying to us there, blessed is the person, you and me, who has surrendered his or her life to Christ and has had their transgressions forgiven and their sins covered. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, our small minds can't conceive of the many and wonderful things that take place on our behalf in that deep and mysterious realm of God and what it actually takes for our transgressions to be truly forgiven and our sins to be wiped away. Our small minds most often look upon our sins with a triviality. We think our sins are not that bad. How many times have I heard someone say, but I'm a good person. I shudder when they say that. They treat their sins with triviality. And folks, that would be appalling to God if he could be appalled. Listen, I'm going to give you an example. Our usual handling of our transgressions and sins, if they even come to our minds at all, is to quickly conduct court about the matters. We conduct court about something that we just did wrong. Invariably then, as we consider all those extenuating circumstances and conditions that led up to our transgression, as our own judge, as our own judge, we quickly find reason to pronounce ourselves innocent. We pronounce ourselves innocent, or at least we're justifiable for our conduct. We had reasons for what we were doing. But folks, listen. Our court and its proceedings do not count. They do not count. We are corrupt, utterly corrupt, and unfit to judge ourselves or anyone else. We have no authority, no position to be a judge and to hold court concerning our sins or anyone else's sins. We're not the one who has created the law by which sin is judged. And we have not been appointed judge to decide the merits or the failures regarding the law. We're not qualified, folks. We are not qualified to be either the prosecutor or the defender. In fact, we have no standing or position within the court except that of being the accused. We are the accused. We, each of us, every person born on this earth, have inherent within us the natures and the failures spoken about here. We are inherently sinful and we continually busy ourselves with the commission of sinful acts. And listen, left unchanged, we deserve to go straight into eternal suffering in hell. You know, one of the things that I draw back from when I see the news media and someone standing there screaming into the microphone of the reporter saying, we demand justice for whoever or for whatever instance. Oh, folks, that's the wrong thing. 
if any of us get justice, we get to go to hell for the rest of our existence. We need to be crying out for mercy, for mercy. So then, left unchanged, we deserve to go straight into an eternal suffering in hell. But God, and I love those words, but God. As you're reading your New Testament, notice how many times that expression is used, but God, but God. Those are two of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. All that I've been saying about how sinful we are and how we deserve to spend an eternity in hell, these are the words that will bless us. But God, in His great mercy and grace, has found a way to remove all of the penalty and all of the punishment for our sinful condition that I've been talking about for the last few minutes and to replace it with righteousness that is beyond our comprehension. He has given us the answer, the only answer. He has given us the Lord Jesus. Remember words I've quoted to us so often from 1 John. It says, and this is a testimony, that eternal life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. He has given us Jesus. And through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, He has given us this special blessedness that we've been reading about here in Psalm 32. Christ dying on the cross for your sins gives you this. Blessed is He or her whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the person unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Folks, in Christ, in Christ, our transgressions, those many and awful acts and behaviors and conducts that we commit each day, that so corrupt our lives and corrupt the lives of those around us, they are forgiven. We are forgiven of all of those. It's as these words here in Psalm 32 tell us. And through the precious shed blood of Christ, our sins are not only covered over, our sins are completely wiped away. They are justified just as if they had never taken place. And God the Father will no longer hold us accountable for them. And yes, we can step over that threshold into heaven and he'll say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Because of what he did for us on the cross, our iniquity, our continually sinful nature has lost its control over us. And we no longer have to sin. That sin no longer controls our behavior. So we can say no to it. We truly can. And that deceitful guile, that thing that resides there in the back of our mind, that once thrived within us, that's been cast out. And it's been replaced by the Spirit of Christ. The precious Spirit of God, who once left Adam and Eve there in the garden, now lives and abides within each one of us who believes and has received Christ as their Savior. What a special blessedness that is. We'll close with this. Here again, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray these simple words. Forgive us our sins. And then in Psalm 32, we're told how blessed it is for you and me when we receive Christ as our Savior. Blessed is he or she whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man or woman unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. 
and in whose spirit there is no guile. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, thank you. Thank you for taking away our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross and shedding your blood to wipe them away completely. We thank you, dear Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.